But we are in part three of our Learning to Worship series and I entitled the message, Worship in Suffering. So I want to talk a little bit um, about suffering this morning, but one quick, maybe side note that will help us understand some aspects of worship as a congregation. And yes, I have a lozenge in my mouth, so I'm spitting more than normal. I completely understand that. Um, however, I've been sick for eight days now, and I'm trying to kick this thing, and it's beating me up. So last night I could barely even talk. So, I need to talk to you about the issue of style of worship. Now, it's calmed down much now, but for maybe the last seven, eight years or so, there was a big movement in the church that became known as the worship wars. It was ripping churches apart, this whole idea of what style of music should we play in service? Should we do hymns? Should we do the modern acoustic rock? Should we do this style or that style? And as people flooded into the church from different backgrounds, it became ferocious and churches actually split over the issue. You'll notice there was a big development of two different services. You'll do one that's traditional, one that's uh, more contemporary. Uh, there was all different ways that people work with it. Sometimes they blend it together and they do both. Okay, I need to address the issue of style. I know that we all come from different backgrounds. We have a huge uh, denominational mix here in our congregation. Some of you grew up with this style right here. As a matter of fact, when you walked in, not even realizing, because I don't give you guys a heads up on any of this stuff, when you walked in and saw this little baby right here, right, your joy was exceedingly great. Uh, this one over here, most of you recognized, however, this is a piano, you know, and you would look at that and say, uh, it is well with my soul, all right? So, um, as they began to lead and you, and you realized there was an absence of drums, your heart began to soar. Uh, now there are others of you that you walked in and they started the music and you went, what in the world is this? You're like, what are we all 1940s now? What are we doing here? All right. And there's a complete disconnect and that was not where you're used to being. So let me address the issue of styles here for a moment. Please. Do not ever say phrases like, this style of music is more holy than this style. Do not say the phrase, God is more pleased with this style of music versus another. Here's why. To God, music is entirely secondary when it comes to worship. Worship is about hearts and engagement. God is glorified when hearts are engaged, whatever the style is. And you go, well, that's not true. And you have all your reasons. Okay, let me blow your argument out of the water in one second. Here's the primary reason why. This style or any of the styles that you're going to engage with largely in this church all end up coming from a lot of white bread folks, right? That are all from America or came over from Europe. So, why exactly would they have the corner market on what God likes? Are you telling me that God is not glorified in China? 
Okay, do you, have you ever heard music that comes out of China? It is dramatically different than any music we will ever play on our worship stage. And God is glorified by it. We need to understand. We have to be very careful about saying God's really only about this. God is global. God is all time. God is outside all of that. He is not constantly watching mankind and going, I can't wait for hymns to come in because then finally I'm going to get what I want. I've been waiting for it for thousands of years. There's all this clicking and stuff. I don't even know what they're talking about, right? No, of course not. So let's not be silly and say that one type of music is all about God and the other one is not. Stylistically, that is not true. Now, why do we feel that way? Well, let me give you a little insight into maybe some psychology of it all. We as people are extraordinarily locked in environment. Uh, for example, our senses take in certain things and they bring us to different places. If I was to pipe through our airways the smell of peanuts, popcorn, and cotton candy, I will transport you from here to where? Maybe a carnival, maybe Disneyland, maybe somewhere else. But you immediately even start hearing the little doom boop 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 boop, right? You can hear all that stuff go on in the background. It's all coming into your mind. You are transported away. Uh, another example is um, whenever I smell after a rain, I smell on the fields, like a lot of fields of either grass or weeds. There's a certain smell that takes me back to my early teen years because I would commute down to Sacramento from El Dorado Hills and driving back home. I would go through long stretches where there was nothing but fields around me. And that reminds me of that day. We are very environmental when you hear a style of worship in your auditory memory it will take you to a certain place almost always you will lock in and consider holy what style of music was playing during your first powerful engagement with god now if you grew up and there was hymns being played but you were disconnected you didn't, it was your parents' church, you were doodling, you didn't care, there's no association. However, if you first fell in love with Jesus under a church that played hymns, and you looked up to people who you saw praising God in the midst of hymns, you will immediately lock in its value, and you will hold that in your heart. It will become easy for you to immediately connect emotionally with that style of music. If, however, you grew up, now I grew up, that it, was, it didn't just go hymns to what Jake plays, right? The acoustic rock stuff. There were some steps along the way. It kind of went here to Maranatha. Anybody remember Maranatha? All right. Now, Maranatha is what I grew up under. And that is kind of the, the style of a jazzy version of this, right? Everything was about the deer panning for the water, right? Uh, Maranatha was a, a music company and they put out the most of it so they kind of got their name attached to it Then it went from Maranatha to integrity Then it went from integrity to Hillsong and it went to passion and it began to move through to what we have today 
Well, when I hear the Maranatha stuff, it's not necessarily as a musician, I look back and go, wow, that was brilliant music. That's not what I'm thinking. But I associate it with all the people I looked up to growing up spiritually. And it has value to me. So understand, when you respond to a certain style, when you walk into a church, I need you to switch your language from, oh, God likes this best, to, wow, this style of music is easy for me to worship to, or, wow, I need to learn a new pattern to even try to worship to this style. Does that make sense? It all is about whether or not it's easy or more difficult and you have to learn new patterns. That's it. I'll walk into a high school or a junior high worship band and and everything's going ballistic and crazy, right? They're all engaged. Ah, They're all completely into God, right? They can't even see anything else. It's all Jesus all the time. I'm completely distracted. I walk in. I have no idea what in the world's going on. I have to learn new patterns just to get there. I get it. We all have to learn different patterns, but make sure that you don't say... God is not honored there because he is. As long as hearts are engaged, he is honored. All right, let's dive into this idea of worship in suffering. When we talk about the largest category of psalms, we're addressing cries for help. Some of those are called laments. A lament is basically a way of saying, my life is miserable. And I want to write a song about it. Now, you can turn on the radio and realize that people are still writing laments every day. Why, if the Psalms are called the hymn book of the Old Testament, if they are basically the hymnal of the Jewish people, why would you include your largest category into I'm bummed out songs? Why would you allow all that in there? Why would you want that to be the majority of your music? That doesn't even make sense to some of us. Why would they allow that? Isn't God stuff supposed to be happy and perky? All right. Here's where we need to realize the Bible does not follow certain cultural concepts like If you go to church, you all have to have a smile on your face and be plastic and everything super. The Bible is much more realistic than that. And they include the Psalms of Lament. They include cries of help because it's real life. Two days ago, I should say three days now, on Thursday, I received an email from a gal here at church. And she said, Lance, at the beginning of this year, you told us we were going to be talking about music. And you said, maybe God would put music on our hearts. Well, I wrote a psalm. And I just wanted you to hear it. I wanted you to see it. Because this is what is on my heart. It's not happy. But it's what's on my heart. And she had no idea what I was going to be preaching on this weekend. She had no idea how well it fit in to what I was about to say. I asked her if I could read it to you. She said, as long as you never, ever mention my name. And I said, of course. And this is her psalm. What a wretched life I've lived. An object of scorn, ridicule, and a laughing stock to others. I long for my end of days to take away my suffering. 
Have mercy on me and forgive me, Father, for I have dishonored you with all my life. Like a roaring lion tearing at its prey, the consequences of my sin devours me continually. Oh, how deep my grief, Lord. Deeply it seeps into my soul. The wrath and pain that consumes me is of my own doing. How broken is broken enough, O Lord. Father, please pass me your cup of mercy so I may drink and be healed and comforted. I bear the heavy burden of my consequences. Please help me carry it. I am a desolate wasteland. How long, Lord, will you lead me through this desert? How long? How broken is broken enough, O Lord. Swing open your doors of redemption and love. As the rain falls and saturates the earth and nourishes all that you have created, as the rain falls and cleanses and washes away everything it touches, restore my soul, Lord, saturate me like rain with your healing love and grace. Father, you are my hope and refuge. Save me from myself, Lord. All things are possible with you, O Lord, but how long, O Lord, how long? The Lord is just and pain purifies but how long, O oh Lord, how long? Do you relate to her? If I was to poll all of you and say, can you maybe understand what she's saying? I would probably say 95% of you can lock in. If I said, well, I got a song and the song says something like, Man, isn't my life awesome? Everything's great. I can't remember ever having any problems, and I probably will never again. How many of you will relate? Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be uh, a couple, maybe 2% of you that may go, I love that one. That's totally me. All right. We have a common bond in humanity of suffering. But what's the value of suffering? How do we worship in suffering? Well, there are some theologians that would go so far as to say, because of the depth that suffering takes us with the Lord, because of the ability to know God in suffering, it is almost impossible to know God at all without having suffered. Therefore, all believers must suffer to some degree to know God. Now, I don't know if I would go that far, but I do know that I have friends that have said to me, almost all of them, the difficult time I went through, out of everything, it did one thing for me. I know God better. Most people I know that have hit rock bottom turned around, looked up, and saw the Lord. I know that a good amount of you are here saved by the blood of Jesus Christ because you were taken to the end of yourself, had nothing left, and cried out for a Savior. We can all talk about the blessings of suffering, but when you're in it, it's really hard to see. As I went through and I began to think about the value of this or how we can worship during it, I came up with some odd analogies. So whenever I come up with an analogy while I'm driving the car, there's usually a problem there because I'm trying to jot it down on a note. That's why I rear-ended you. <coughs> so what I now realize is that the iPhone comes with a recorder, so I actually recorded this one. Now, whenever I come up with an analogy, it's bizarre and it only makes sense to me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Let's. Uh, here's my point. Suffering is a matter of perspective. 
Let me explain how. All right, let's say that during this last recession, you were crushed financially and you had to, uh, let's see, shift down from maybe a 2,200 square foot house to a 750 square foot apartment. You lost your home. You lost all your money. And you ended up having to move your family of four down into a little tiny apartment. And you're really, really wrestling with joy. You say, it is very hard to wrestle here in this place of my life after what I've lost. My question back to you is, why is that? Because what you do not know is there's also a possible scenario that let's say have a couple changes in your past. You would have been in a 5,200 square foot home and had to at some point in difficulty shift down to the 2,200 square foot home. You would have found it difficult to worship there. But you didn't last month. You considered that normal. You considered that blessed. Why? We are creating invisible lines that when we shift down or lose something, we say now it is hard to have joy. But what if that's all you knew? You see, if we zoom back a couple years, you were at this location and had a fine time worshiping and praising Jesus. That's only because you didn't realize you had fallen from somewhere else. Suffering is so much a matter of perspective. We always think about what we have lost as opposed to what we still have. If all your earthly possessions were removed, there are still certain things that the enemy enemy cannot touch. The enemy cannot steal your joy. The enemy cannot steal the fruits of the spirit. The enemy cannot steal your salvation. The enemy cannot steal eternity from you. As a matter of fact, that which truly matters is locked down and in a vault that the enemy cannot access. Let me use another analogy. On my notes, I called it whose storyline is it anyway? And let me give you kind of an odd analogy. I'm an art guy. I've always enjoyed art. As I'm, you know, I'm a musician as well. And so I've had all kinds of weird art background and theater and that kind of stuff. Well, as I went through and I've gone on many travels throughout the world, as I've gone to Greece and Turkey and Italy and Rome and France, and I'm looking at all these things, going to galleries and everything, I noticed a really odd phenomenon. That I'm looking at all this ancient stuff and I love uh, sculpting and things like that. And all the statues all over the world are missing heads. Now, I don't know if there's an alien race that just throughout history just gobbles up heads off statues. But it seems like all the cool statues of the world no longer have a head. Now, I consider a head a rather important part of the body. I'm used to looking at people at their head. So when I go up and I see as I'm walking through Ephesus with all these amazing remains and I look over and there's a statue on a pedestal and it does not have a head, that's disruptive to me. And every time I ask the tour guide, hey, where's the head? It's always the same answer. The Christians took it away. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Why are Christians gathering heads? I think that's weird. 
Well, it's not that Christians are gathering heads. It's that it, when you go over into uh, other countries that are ancient, you begin to realize there's a lot of stuff that happened during the Crusades. Well, when the Crusades went through, they stormed places and they would see statues and they would knock them over. Well, what's the first thing that breaks off when you have a statue fall over? It's the head. And then they don't bother picking that up, but the body's still there. So when they do the cleanup, they just set the body back up. Then I went to other places and they'd say, this used to be the largest library. It had all the best volumes. It had all this amazing stuff in it. And we would learn all about these cultures if only the Christians wouldn't have come and burned it all down. I'm like, what do you mean they burned it all down? Yeah, they lit the whole thing afire. So everything is gone. Oh, I, we have no access because a bunch of Christians ran around and burned stuff? So as an artist, Christians are rather frustrating. <laughs> so if we follow the storyline of art, wow, we sure don't look good because we kind of mess everything up. But what if the storyline is righteousness? What if we were all talking in church about the idea of taking a stand for God and worshiping him alone? What if when the crusaders come into a new territory and they realize it's not a statue of art, it's a statue of worship? We all were very impressed when they put the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon's temple and God had his angels knock over Dagon and his head broke off. When they walk through and they're thinking of the almighty God being pushed aside for demons and idols. You can imagine their ferocity that they'd walk through and see people praising and giving gifts to these statues. And they see no reason they should remain standing. They see no value in that culture and they shove them over. When they think of all this literature that we now look at as history, it was not history to them. It was their own religious practices. It was things that were taking people away from God. We get all excited when we read about, and Paul led a great movement in Ephesus, and they all brought out their witchcraft books, and they burned them. When they burned down the library, that was exactly what they were trying to do, is get rid of the evil in their midst. Depends on which storyline you're following. How does this relate? If your life storyline is all about you, suffering is rather unfortunate. It's terrible. It is to be avoided. But if the storyline isn't really about you and the storyline is really about God, then suffering has great value. Why? Because of the fill-in-the-blank in front of you, the fill-in-the-blank in front of you is this, through our challenges rise God's glory. Through our challenges rise God's glory. How is that? Because whether it is a trial by which God allows things to come into our life to demonstrate our faith in Him, so that angels look upon it and say, wow, God must be important because look at that little one down there, that little tiny dirtbag creature. They are worshiping God no matter how hard they get hit. They think he's important. You know what? Let's praise God over it. Whether or not that is the case or whether or not it is consequence for sin, which is the vast 
amount of suffering in this world. Because we say no to God. When you say no to God, people die. People get hurt. And you realize that God's way is the only way where people don't get hurt. And where we need to realize there is a King of kings and Lord of lords that's above all things. And when you violate that, bad things happen. Whether it's the consequence of trying to get back to the Lord, He is glorified. So no matter how you want to look at it, Suffering will result in the glory of God. And if it's really about Him, I guess it's useful. Would you turn with me to Psalm 42? Psalm 42, and the Bible's handed to you, that's page 401. Psalm 42, page 401. Um, One thing I learned in my studies is that Psalm 42 and 43 used to be one psalm. And you say, well, how do you, how do you know that? Because all the psalms in this particular section of scripture all have titles and certain refrains. Psalm 43 doesn't have a title. It was blended and it repeats the exact same refrain of 42. So you can tell it was one long psalm at one point and somewhere it was divided out. Now, we're only going to study 42 in our short time together. However, I'm going to read through 42 and 43 with you so you can get an idea of the context. You'll notice that maybe in your Bibles it says book two. Did you see that? Book two is that Psalms is broken into four books inside of it. This is the beginning of book two. So when I refer to this group of Psalms, you'll understand what I mean. But let's just kind of read through it and see if any of this relates to us. As the deer pants for streams of water. Oh, there it goes again. So my soul pants for you, O Lord. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with a multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All of your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with a harp, O God, my God. 
Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we listen to the psalmist cry out to you, there are so many parts of this that click with where we are at, where we have been, or where we are going. We pray, Lord, that today you would give us a new view of yourself, that you'd give us new insight to how wonderful you are, that we might praise you in the midst of suffering. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I've shared earlier this year, there's something that David knew that many of us do not. That when his child, his first child with Bathsheba died, he went in to praise and worship. There's something that Job knew that he could say the phrase, though you slay me, yet will I worship you. This is where we are running to be. We are clamoring to try to understand and become spiritually mature to where even in the midst of the darkest circumstances, our praise can still ring out. Hmm. Most scholars believe that this psalmist is an exile, that he had been captive from Israel's territory and taken away somewhere. He used to be the Levite that led the procession. He was a worship leader, but now he's been ripped out of his homeland, placed somewhere else, and now he has to look from afar. And all day long, his enemies would look at him and say, clearly your God's not here. We have you. You have no rescue. And he has to remember back, and he's so down and wondering if he'll ever return. Now, I fought that initially in my spirit as I was reading this. I was thinking, no, maybe it's just a personal challenge that he's going through. And I thought, wow, how very 21st century American of me. You go, what do you mean? Well, I look at that and I go, well, who cares where you're at? So what? You're outside of your own land. Worship God there. What do you care? That is a very post-Pentecost phrase. What's post-Pentecost? That's where we live. You remember what happened on Pentecost? Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, one of the biggest things ever, the launch of the Christian church. Why? The Holy Spirit went worldwide. Prior to that, in the Old Testament, most Old Testament saints had a concept that although God may be everywhere, he had locations where he was thickest. How do we know that? Well, remember the whole story we had about the Ark of the Covenant? Everybody was focused on the gold box. You got to get next to the gold box. You got to have the seat of mercy. You got to have God's presence right above there. You got to go where Moses is because where Moses is the tent of meeting and that's where God comes down. And wow, I know that God is in the temple of Jerusalem. And so if I make my pilgrimage there, I can be in his presence. That's the Old Testament mindset. Hmm. But even though this is an exile wanting so badly to go back home, to be in the thick presence of corporate worship, I think we can make it very personal. If you've ever felt like God was not answering your prayers or God was silent or it was completely quiet around you in the midst of your suffering, then you know what he feels like. 
You ever prayed and felt like your prayers went no higher than a foot above your head? If you've ever constantly called out, God, are you there? And nothing. Then you know exactly what I'm talking about and what he's talking about. So let's take a rapid look at this psalm and see what we have. Look at the title of it. For the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah, most of us would look at that and then just jump right on through and get right into the meat of it, right? You just missed it. You just missed a whole story of redemption. You go, I don't, what, where? Okay, now we realize these titles were added later. By different historians and scribes, they would put this stuff in. It was kind of tradition stuff, so we're not going to say that it was in the original manuscripts or the original autographs. That is probably not true. But it has incredible significance. Because whoever wrote this knew something we don't know. So what part do we need to look at? Well, notice it says, for the director of music, that just means, hey, we're going to sing this one in temple. Can you get this to the worship leader? And then it's a maskil, which is a contemplation, meaning this is heavy. I need you to think about this. But then the last phrase of the sons of Korah. That's the part you missed. Who are the sons of Korah? Well, granted, 11 psalms are attributed to the sons of Korah. They were a Levitical family line that were primary musicians in the temple. As a matter of fact, there were 24 musical groups in the temple. 14 of them were led by the sons of Korah or family of Korah. And you go, all right, I get it, I get it, I get it. So they're super involved and they led worship all the time. So what? Do you know the story of Korah? Numbers chapter 16 tells the story that Moses and Aaron were leading Israel. And remember, there were two big groups. There were the priests who got to talk to God and engage with God. And then there were the Levites, remember? The Levites were the temple helpers. They were the ones that set up and tore down. They were the background guys. They were the ones that anointed things and got it all prepared for the priests. Well, at some point, you're going to have a jealousy problem because there's a hierarchy. So three ringleaders, three big dogs, led by a man by the name of Korah, came up to Moses and said, you've gone too far. You're too cocky. Now what, only you can talk to God? Like we're not that impressive? We have the same stuff as you. We are Israelites, you're Israelites. We are leaders, you're leaders. As a matter of fact, God loves us just as much. So why do you think that you get to have the priestly line and you get to do all the special stuff? You know what? You're just power hungry. You're just blocking us out. Now remember, the Bible says that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. So it goes to show no matter what leader you are, you're going to get challenged. So what does Moses do normally when he gets attacked? He falls on his face before God and says, God, you've got to solve this one for me. And God says, all right, here's the plan. I want everybody to come up before me and offer up their incense sacrifice, and I will sort it out. By the way, can you just have Israel go ahead and back up all their tents away from the three ringleaders? That would be awesome. I say, why is that? Nah, don't worry about it. Just, just go ahead and have them do that. So the three ring leaders with all their families and cattle and everything else, everybody backs up. He says, all right, let's get started. Here's what I want you to do. I want the ring leaders, right? You have one thing, and then I'm going to have the 250 guys that are with them in the rebellion. 250 leaders of Israel. 
I want you to all scoop up your incense, light it on fire as an offering to God, these long cylinder objects. He said, and I want you all to offer your fire before the Lord, and I'll sort this thing out. So they all go up before that. The earth opens up, swallows all their tents, all their families, all their cattle, everything, and slams shut right over the top of them. Whoa! They look back, and those offering fire, fire from the presence of God sweeps out and burns all 250 of them into ashes. <laughs> Moses and Aaron are like, dang! That was, that was not what I was expecting! <clears throat> In this process, God executes judgment upon that which is rebellious and wrong. It's his family line that's running all the worship in the temple. Huh, that's weird. I guess that's called redemption, huh? In the Old Testament, do you see the mercy? Do you see the grace? That he goes, I know what your dad did. I know what your family line is all about. That has nothing to do with you. Will you worship me? Will you lead my people? Will you learn from their mistakes? Great. Bring it. Come on in. And he gathers them up and allows them to lead and become the most prominent family of temple musicians. I think God can see past a few things. I think forgiveness means forgiveness. Let's take a look at it. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. One commentary said, clearly it's a woman author. No man would talk about a deer panting. I was like, what? Where did that come from? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. You ever been in a spiritual drought? This guy has. And he uses the phrase God, that's Elohim, that's a general term for God, not the personal name of Yahweh. That's key. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with you? When can I go back home? My tears have been my food all day and night. Man, I can't even eat. I've been so distraught. I feel like the only thing I've eaten for days is the tears that run down my cheek into my mouth. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? And you know what? Yeah, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude. I was leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Yeah, I was that guy in the front of the church. My hands extended the best. I was the one leading everybody. I was the worship leader. And now I'm spiritually desolate. I get it. I know everybody's looking and going, I thought you were the man. I thought you were really into God. Now all of a sudden you're all nothing. You never even talk about God. And I rarely even see you go to church. And you're. I know. I'm wiped out. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Hmm. You ever had a dialogue with yourself? And the dialogue goes something like this. I feel like God has abandoned me. I know that can't be true, but it sure feels like it. I know that God is there, yet I cannot feel him. I, he does not answer my prayers. And you're torn. 
you have this dialogue back and forth in almost a schizophrenic manner. That's exactly what's going on here. There's this constant battle of saying, all hopelessness is swallowing me up and I have to lock in and say, that's not true. I refuse to allow myself to sit in despair. I must cry out. I must know that God is good all the time, despite my circumstances. I'm not just going to allow my body to push me wherever it wants to go. I'm not just going to fall apart and lay there as if God doesn't care. I know he cares. I can't feel it. But hope. Don't give up. Deep calls to deep. That is a technical term in Hebrew for chaos. Remember when it says, and the earth was formless and void and the spirit was hovering over those waters? That's the same word. It's the chaos of the darkness. Chaos calls to chaos and they're conspiring to destroy me. Deep calls to deep in the roar of the waterfall, showering down, pounding with one difficulty after another. All of your waves, God, clearly you're allowing this. You are the creator. You are the sustainer of life. You've obviously allowed trial to sweep over me. Your waves, your breakers have swept over me. And I'm crushed. But yet, by day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me prayer to the God of my life. Do you see him go back and forth and back and forth? I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why am I still in pain? Why am I still in bondage? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony. That word literally is there's murder in my bones. I'm dying here as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you so downcast? O my soul. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will, I will praise him again. I'll praise him now, my Savior and my God. You ever felt like that? God wants to hear from you whether good, bad, or ugly. Yeah? Now, there are rules. The rules are do not be disrespectful. Job learned that. God has no problem with you saying, I'm miserable, I want to die, and I wish I never lived. God understands that. How do we know that? Because the psalmist says it all the time. God wants you to cry out and tell you it's unfair. Tell him that it's unfair, because it is unfair. Tell him about your injustice. Tell him about your frustrations. Tell him about your gloom. But don't say things about him that are not right. Do not say, and you are a bad God. He's not a bad God. He's a good God because you don't have the whole story yet. You don't know what you're talking about. Your circumstances are messing with your head and you don't see it rightly. Let me finish with this last analogy. Do you realize what makes good literature? Any book that you ever read has to have one element in it. Otherwise, it is not considered a book. Any story must have the element of tension. Something has to go wrong. Right. So whether it's a comic book or it's a novel or it's a movie, there has to be tension. Otherwise, there's no such thing as a story. If you take most stories that you've ever read and you get two, let's say three fourths of the way through it, you're almost done with it. Things are pretty tense. What if you shut the book and never opened it again? Is the book good? I can guarantee you nine times out of ten, you're depressed. 
Stop shutting the book of your life. God is not done writing yet. You're at the third quarter, maybe. But he's still writing. And I can tell you how it ends. It ends really good. And you look backwards and go, oh, I totally get it. That's why all that was, oh, I see. How do I know it ends well? Because the Bible told me so. You go, that's not true. That's not true. Because my mom and she served God all her life and she died in absolute pain and it was nothing but misery. Pause. And she's still suffering now. Well, no, now she's in heaven. Oh. So there was a chapter at the end of the book that talks something about heaven. I see. I know how it ends. And it ends, if you are a child of God, it ends in glory. I know it ends in freedom from pain. I know it ends with Jesus loving you. I know it ends with things making sense. I know that it ends with an aha moment. That I know. God's not done with you yet. So don't finish with him. Let him keep writing. How do we worship in the midst of suffering? We get our head out of the pit and back up, looking up at Jesus, who's enthroned above all, with a name that is above every name, and know that he is good. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Lord, even in the midst when things are not going the way we should, Lord, I'm still battling sickness and I have to go lead a trip to Israel. But I know you're good. Lord, I'm spoiled. There's blessing upon blessing upon blessing in my life. I have my church with me. I have my beautiful daughters. I have a wonderful, amazing wife. Lord, though my health fails me, you never fail me. And I pray on behalf of all of us that, Lord, we want to look again at how good you are. And we want to shift our perspective from the waves to our Jesus. In your sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.